So, as you probably all know, we're teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Our theme is everyday discipleship. And I don't know if this is for you or if this is just for me, but I kind of have a sort of a liturgy that I do with a book is I just kind of walk through some of the basic tenets of it. So I'm going to do that before we get into our main text this morning. So like I said, it's good for us, it's good for me to remind us that this is a letter written to a local church, a church that was in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so just like any church in any time or any place, there were victories, but there were also defeats. There were clear signs that God and his kingdom were at work among them. There were also glaring inconsistencies with the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, Jesus himself. Remember the Corinthians, they had just such clear evidences of the deep roots of their former lifestyle, and especially the lifestyle of Corinth. And so it had been reported to Paul by the household of Chloe that there were all sorts of issues going on in the church, and that the church was experiencing social, spiritual, and sexual problems, that members were <clears throat> pitting themselves against one another, the congregation against Paul. And so it feels like Paul has a laundry list of issues that he just needs to kind of bring up, boxes that he needs to check with the Corinthians. But these are really symptoms of the greater disease, and that is that the Corinthians had failed to understand the real-life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's where Paul really has been camping out in this first section of Corinthians. See, the community of believers in Corinth were not reflecting the values, practices, and culture of the kingdom of God, but were a reflection just of the people of the day. Until Paul writes to bring them back into alignment with the way of Jesus. Last time I shared uh, out of 1 Corinthians, I quoted Leslie Newbegin. I'll quote him a few times today, but he wisely said this. The choice of the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture? By the biblical story or the cultural story? And I believe that this really is the question that each generation of the church has to ask themselves. It is the duty of every generation to rediscover the faith and to, you know, as it were, kind of move the ball down the field uh, to continue to write the story of God. Will we do that being shaped by Scripture? Will we do that being shaped by our culture? Now, the specific context of our section this morning is that the Corinthians were making cult leaders of the apostles. They were using their personalities and giftings to differentiate between groups of the church. They're creating their own hierarchy. They're creating their own caste system. And this had all sorts of implications for the Corinthians, for their own spiritual formation, for their community witness, and of course, for the reputation of Jesus in the gospel. Now, in our last section, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the church belongs to God, not to them, and definitely not to any apostle or pastors or even group of pastors. The church is God's temple, his dwelling place. It belongs to him. It's his building project. 
And therefore, everyone who builds a church must be careful, cautious, how they are building upon that foundation that has been laid, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Because one day God, like a building inspector, is going to test the work. And on that day, the work will be proven whether it is a good work or shoddy work. Whether the work bears the image of Jesus or it bears the image of something else. And so Paul now continues this metaphor of God's temple or God's house. And Paul talks about this identity that he has. And so I wanna unpack this section for us and bring some understanding and application of what this is all about. Because I think there is a lot of confusion about this section. So let's talk about it. Paul continues with the metaphor of God's temple or God's house. And so Paul, he wants to reestablish his identity in Corinth. Because as I said, there's been a lot of confusion among the Corinthians. So he says this, this is how we apostles should be regarded. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, or as some translations say, stewards of the household of God. So the Corinthians were using the wrong measurements to judge Paul and the other apostles. As I said, they were using the values and standards of the Greco-Roman culture. And it even seems that Corinth had its own kind of celebrity culture. It was around the different philosophers that would travel around Greece and they would attach themselves to kind of the coattails and popularity of these different Stoic or whatever other philosophical group, they had attached themselves to them and that's how they had clout. That's how they attached themselves to some you know, celebrity or some, some hierarchy. And they were using this for their own desires for authority, their own status in the church, and it seems their own status in the Corinthian community as well. And so Paul makes it clear and this is my own paraphrase. I am not doing what I'm doing for you or for your approval. I'm not even doing this for me or my own self-approval or self-justification. I'm doing this for Jesus. He and his approval is all that matters to me. See, Paul is a servant of Jesus. He's like a household manager of Jesus' house. So then the only thing that matters is that the master of the house is happy with the work. It really doesn't matter what the other servants of that house think. It doesn't matter what other stewards in the house think. It doesn't matter what the masters of other houses think. All that matters is pleasing the master. All that matters is pleasing Jesus. Now, of course, this brings up all sorts of questions and I think misunderstandings of what Paul is actually teaching here. So let's talk about a couple of those. Is Paul basically saying, no one can judge me but God? Yes and no. Paul isn't talking about sin or morality. Just to be clear, he's talking about identity and calling. 
just in case we think that these verses can be used to somehow justify whatever we want to do, however we want to live. Is Paul teaching justification by works? No. He's talking about the judgment of our good works, whether they will receive commendation from the Lord or they will be found to have been done for ourselves and the approval of others. Now, because of Paul's solidness or firmness of his identity, his clear sense of calling and purpose, he is unmoved and undeterred by the Corinthians' low or high estimation of him. Paul even goes on to say that he actually isn't moved, motivated, or ultimately discouraged by his own estimation or judgment of himself. He doesn't even do that anymore. Paul is unwavering, resolute. Now, this is incredible, and I think somewhat unsettling for some of us. Paul seems pretty arrogant and self-confident even as he's warning the Corinthians of the danger of arrogance and self-confidence, doesn't he? What is this? Well, I think we need to understand the difference between pride and humility. I think sometimes we can mistake pride for what is actually true humility because true humility carries a confidence that can be mistaken for pride. You see, true humility is having a right assessment of our strengths and our weaknesses. It is to know who we are and also who we are not. Pride or false humility is when we camp out or get stuck on either our strengths or our weaknesses. Paul is talking about having such a clear understanding of his identity in Christ, his calling and mission, that the only one he cares about ultimately pleasing is Jesus himself. Now, far from that being a just Jesus and me, privatized religion, no one can judge me but God type of mentality, Paul's life is one that is outward facing, others centered. It's a life that's lived for Christ. It's a life that's lived through Christ. And we've pointed this out in previous studies. Paul's life is all about putting the life of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God on display. Paul's life, because it is Jesus-centered, is all about pleasing Jesus. And so it's a life lived in the service of others. So I, I think this morning it's important for us to consider how Paul got how Paul kept this clear-headedness about his own identity and calling. Why? Because in our day and age, and I don't, I mean, I don't think that this is unique to our day and age, but there are a thousand voices telling us who we are, what we're to be doing, what is the most important thing? What life is all about? What you should be prioritizing? What is worthy of our time, our focus, and sacrifice? And so the question is, how do we as followers of Jesus keep the mental fortitude to stay clear on our identity and calling? How do we stay clear? 
headed. Where did Paul get this? And how can we have that same resoluteness to not be ultimately moved by what others think of us or even what we think about ourselves? Let's talk about Paul and how he found his own identity. Listen to the introduction of Romans. Romans 1, 1 through 7, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, listen to this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here, writing to the Romans, he talks about his mission. He talks about his calling. He talks about his identity. I receive grace and apostleship. What is that? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name. This is what Paul was about Now remember Paul's backstory. Paul had once been a Pharisee, a radical persecutor of the church. Paul said in one of his letters that he had been zealous for the tradition of his fathers. And in other places, he speaks of this same zeal. Now many believe that this refers to the zeal of Phineas. How many of you guys remember the story of Phineas? So there's this story about how... um, the Midianite women, Midianite, Moabite, I can't remember. It doesn't matter right now. Women from another tribe came into the camp. This is this plan so that they will be led away into idolatry and then they'll be judged by God. Well, it works, right? And so there is this man, Phineas. He is the grandson of Aaron. And he sees what's happening, that this transgression is, going to, is leading the people into idolatry, and it is actually the judgment of God is broken out in the camp of Israel. And so what he does, this is one of those, like, I cannot believe this is in the Bible stories, right? The, we don't tell this in the flannel graph in Sunday school, so don't worry, you won't have to tell us one. Um, but he chases down this man and this woman into their tent, and as they're having sex, he takes a spear and he runs both of them through. And doing this stops the judgment and the plague that had broken out among the people of God. And then God speaks and he talks about how Phineas's zeal has stopped the judgment. And this is accounted to him as righteousness. And now as the story goes on in Israel's history, Phineas becomes this hero of Israel. This man's zeal for God, this man's zeal for righteousness has stayed the judgment of God. He has stopped idolatry. 
and he has saved God's people from judgment. Well, guess what? This man is Paul's hero. Yeah, if you go into you know, teenage Paul's bedroom there in Syria, he's the poster on the wall or whatever, the mosaic on the wall, right? This is who he looks up to. This is who he wants to be like. The one who put a stop to the false worship and idolatry that broke out among the Israelites and stayed the judgment of God. And so fast forward, in Paul's understanding, Jesus was a false prophet and false Messiah, specifically because Jesus was crucified. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was leading God's people astray, which would bring the judgment of God, which would prolong the exile of Israel. The solution Stop, imprison, or kill anyone who follows the false Messiah. Protect and preserve the people of God from sin and evil at all cost. This is who Paul is. This is what Paul is about. He's going from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus, carrying letters so that he can carry this out. But then what happened is as Paul journeys on his way to arrest Jesus' followers, he meets the risen, glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed everything. Because if Jesus is not dead, but is alive, glorified, we're told that he shines brighter than the new day sun. This is the Shekinah glory of God from the Old Testament being seen in the New Testament. This is proof that Jesus was in fact the son of man, the messianic figure to whom Yahweh would grant the nations, the power, the authority. He's the king of Israel. He now rules at the right hand of Yahweh. And this means that all the promises of what God intended for Israel, the end of exile, the staying of the judgment, the redemption, the rescue had come about. Jesus was Israel's true and long-awaited king, the savior, the one who redeems Israel. God had done it. He had done what he had always promised to do for Israel, to install himself as king, to rescue and redeem Israel from their sins, and then to bring in the nations to worship the one true king. You guys, this moment becomes the defining moment of Paul's life. It becomes his vision and greatest passion because of his understanding of the greatness of God's love, what God had accomplished through Jesus. His goal then was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of Jesus' name. Everywhere he went, this is what Paul was all about, making known the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is all over the book of Acts. It is all over the epistles that Jesus is king. So knowing Jesus, making him known, pleasing him became the new operating principle of Paul's life. Nothing mattered more than this. This was the meaning of life for Paul. Even if that meant radical suffering, and it often did, listen to him in Philippians 3. I want to know Jesus, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. 
becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Excuse me, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Thomas Chalmers, he once spoke of, I just forgot. (laughs) He spoke of the expulsive power of a greater affection. And I'm just making this connection now because it's not in my notes. But Phineas had been Paul's hero growing up. But on that day, on that road to Damascus, I'll tell you, Paul had a new hero. He had a new goal. He had a new reason for being, for doing, for living, for suffering, for dying. And it was Jesus Christ, the true King of Israel. And after that, everything was about Jesus. Everything was about pleasing Jesus. Everything was about modeling his life after Jesus in every way that he could. This is who and what Paul is all about. And it's as if Paul now turns his focus back to the church at Corinth to say, I follow Jesus, the crucified King. Corinthians, who and what are you all about? So I'll ask us before I read this section, who and what are we all about? Paul with dripping irony, describes himself and other apostles in contrast to the prosperity and celebrity culture that the Corinthians are modeling their lives after. Again, my paraphrase, he says, we apostles are like prisoners of war at the end of the procession. We are like those condemned to die in the arena. Remember, this is where the gladiators would fight brutal battles chopping off limbs. It was just gore and blood and guts. It was a show. He says, we're a spectacle for the whole cosmos, for both angels and humans. We are fools for Christ, weak, dishonored, hungry and thirsty, wearing rags and brutally treated, without homes, working hard with our own hands, cursed but always blessing, persecuted yet enduring, slandered and answering kindly. The scum of the earth and garbage of the world. And then Paul masterfully adds a personal note. Corinthians, I am your father in the faith. And though you may have had a lot of babysitters in recent years, you only have one father. I brought you into the gospel. So see, Paul's point here is to remind the Corinthians that whatever they've been taught by others, it's evident that is inconsistent with the fact that we are following a once crucified king, a king the world rejected, mocked, and murdered. 
The question for ourselves is, the question for the church in Corinth is, does the church bear the reproach, the sufferings, the image of our king, or does it look like the typical leaders, authorities, and rulers of this world? I've mentioned this before, but it is so easy to make a Jesus after our likeness. I think Tim Keller is the first person I heard say this, but he said, if you find that your God is one who always agrees with you and never offends you, chances are you are not following the biblical God. So if we have a Jesus that our lives are modeled after that is only prosperity, only goodness, only peace, only ease, the question is, are we following the real Jesus? Do we bear his image? Now see, here's the thing. Paul wanted all of it. He wasn't going to Schmorgishborg, conformity to Christ. He wasn't going to pick and choose what he thought fit nicely and what wouldn't fit or wouldn't work. He wanted all of it. And he had actually even come to realize that the sufferings more than anything brought conformity to the image of Jesus. Jesus' lowliness, his weakness, his meekness. And those were the things. Maybe it was just because of Paul's personality. I don't know. But this is where Paul drilled down. This is how he wanted to know Jesus. These were the ways he focused in being like him. To join in his sufferings, to bear his reproach. It's interesting, as you read through this list of this you know, as I said, dripping with irony, this is Sermon on the Mount type stuff. Cursed, answering kindly, persecuted, yet enduring it. Paul really modeled his life off of the person and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's everywhere. So the title of my sermon is, Who Is It All For? And so I want to begin to just kind of bring everything to a close with that idea. In Paul's call to the church to follow him in bearing the image of Jesus, I'm reminded of something that struck me years ago when teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. There's a section when Jesus calls his people to love our enemies, to do good to those, you know, who would, spitefully treat us and would use us and all sorts of evil against us. So Jesus calls us to forgive. Jesus calls us to love. But Jesus doesn't give us the reasons that we would expect. Jesus doesn't say, you know, love your enemies, do good to those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you, because it's the right thing to do. Because actually, if you don't, you'll be in years of therapy 
dealing with this, you actually find that it's really difficult to even forgive yourself. He doesn't say it's good for society. So this is why we should do it. Because of our neighbor, because of you know, building a utopia or whatever it might be that we often think about, you know, just for the good of the neighborhood, to be at peace with our neighbors. He doesn't tell us it's just good for you. It will bring you joy. He doesn't even say it's good for kingdom PR. None of these are the reason, though all of these may be certain results of following this command. I actually believe that all of them are. But Jesus says we are to love and forgive because this is who our Father is. This is who our king is. And when we love like God loves, we bear the family likeness so that you might be children of God. So that you might be like your father in heaven who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Or in other words, who loves indiscriminately. I think in the same way Paul is calling us, the church and individual members of it, to bear the image of Christ. Are there benefits and blessing to the lives of others when we do this? Yes, there are. Are there benefits and blessings to my life when I do this? Absolutely. And yet, we do it because of him. We do it because of him. We do it because he's the king. We do it because he is the meaning of the world. He is the meaning of history. He is, as Revelation says, the beginning. He is the end. He is the king, the servant king, the humble king, the master of the house, our redeemer, our rescuer, the lover of our souls. We do it for him. He is the one that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We do it for the glory and praise of his name. That is why we do what we do. This is why we are who we are, because of him. Michael Goheen, in his book, The Church and Its Vocation, it's a book actually all about the teaching and ecclesiology of Leslie Newbegin. He says this, he's quoting Leslie Newbegin. The goal of the biblical story is the cosmic renewal of the creation. And the church's mission is to participate in God's purpose by a faithful witness in life, word, and deed to what he is doing to the ends of the earth in order to invite others into it, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, is what he's saying. What then, he asks, is the point of mission or missions? Is our ultimate concern the need of all people for salvation? Is it the renewal of society? He says, these are valid concerns, but they are not our primary goal, so what is? 
The answer, I believe, quite simply is the glory of God. If God has done what the Bible says he has done, then our response should be to witness to his love and ask, how can I glorify God? How can I please him? It's not, what do you think about me? What do you think about what I should be doing? You tell me. It's not about, what should I be doing, self? What is the goal of life? What is the purpose of living? It's not this existential question for myself, for me to answer, it is outside of me. It's him. How can I glorify God is the question so that there may be throughout the world those who turn their faces to God and give him thanks and glorify him. He says the glory of God is the purpose, the goal of mission, and our one aim is that we should praise and glorify him. Paul wants to recalibrate the church back to looking like Jesus through imitation of Jesus and his ways. And so he says this is the reason why he is sending Timothy to Corinth. He will remind them of Paul's way of life in Christ Jesus, the way that Paul had patterned his whole life after the life of Jesus. And not only that, but Paul himself is on the way, he says. And when he shows up, he says his way of life this priority, this identity, this pattern, this everything for the sake of his name will be proven to be the only life that has true power. I want you to think about that for a moment. What life, what identity has true power? Paul says, it is the life that is patterned after the life of Jesus. A life lived for the glory and after the pattern of Jesus Christ is the only life of kingdom power. For he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talking. We can talk a big talk The question is, where is the power? As I studied through this text these last two weeks, as I thought about Paul and his solid identity, his one aim to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, man, I just thought about what could God do if we begin to live out this solid identity as disciples and heralds of the kingdom of God? What if we lived out like the Westminster Catechism says, what is my one comfort in both life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong to God and to Jesus Christ, both body, soul, I totally butchered that, but, and it's longer than that. But that I belong to God, all of me. That is my main purpose. That is my main calling, to know him and to make him known. 
What could God do if the church began to live that out? Each of us as individuals. How might God manifest his kingdom, power and glory in our midst, in our city, in our county? What healing work might he do in our own lives? And so like Paul, have you gotten a true vision, a revelation of the greatness and centrality of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the expulsive power of a greater affection? Thomas Chalmers talked about this is the, this is the way that radical transformation happens. You have a goal, you have an aim, but something else comes along and it just takes it out of the picture. And now you have a new goal, a new aim. This is what happened for Paul. Have you experienced that? The expulsive power of a greater affection. Or does your sin and the temptation that is before you constantly, does it still hold your affection? The vision that you have for your life, do you still, does it still hold your affections, your desires? Listen, you've gone after these things already and they have already failed you. And these are prophetic whisperings to you. This is not where the power is found. This is not where a solid identity is found. This will not sustain you. This will not satisfy you. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all that are tired, all that are worn out on religion, all that are worn out on the failed idols of culture and the failed visions of kingdom and glory, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my identity and mission, my calling upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You ever think about that line? Rest for our souls. Augustine wisely once said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they rest in you. Have you found that to be true? Or are you still wrestling? Are you still looking? Are you still longing? Have you gotten the true vision? Or church, maybe I'm speaking to you, true follower of Jesus. Have you lost sight? This has been a confusing season. Talk about what we should be doing. Talk about identity issues. Man, this last year threw every single one of us for a spin. And if it didn't, I want to talk to you. You can help me. So I'll ask you, have you lost sight of the glory of Jesus? Have you lost sight of the power and reality of the gospel, that this is the true story of the world, this, that Jesus is the meaning of history.
Are you constantly looking to establish an identity and calling for yourself, but feeling lost and powerless? Jesus freely offers you and me a solid identity in him. We talked about this two weeks ago. Solid identity as those dearly loved by God and rescued by him and rescued for him. Rescued from slavery in order to be children of God, to bear the family likeness, to carry the family mission out. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. May the Holy Spirit work in each of us today to lay aside the false identities that we take on, the alternative kingdom visions that distract us from the glory of the true king and from our mission to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in both word and deed. I'll leave you with this. What is the Holy Spirit pressing on in you right now? And will you confess it? Will you allow God to do a deep work? Will you bring it out into the light, out into the open? Confess it. Leave it at the feet of Jesus. Be freed from it. Take up his mantle. Take up his mission. Holy Spirit, come, Lord. Move in our midst. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Breathe new life in us. As Keith Green so wisely sang years ago, blow through this temple rushing wind. Clear out the dust within. Breathe new life upon us. Lord, give us a revelation of the glory and greatness of Jesus. Reorder our lives from the chaos and rubble of sin, of pride and selfishness. And may our lives be ordered according to the ways of Jesus. Move now, Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would give us words of wisdom, words of knowledge. Give us prophetic visions, tongues and interpretations. Speak and move and work now, Lord, in the midst of your body as we minister to one another. We pray this for the sake of his name. Amen.